Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Are you afraid of heights like I am? Well, the good news is, is there are a lot of people out there that aren't, and some of them want to study what's going on in the canopy of trees, especially large trees like redwoods. Joining us to talk about the importance of large, old trees, all of the structure they create, and all of the organisms that live in that structure is Marie Antoine. She has spent the last few decades climbing giant trees and trying to understand how structure equates to biodiversity, and together with Dr. Steve Sillett, are putting together this idea of potential elder trees to help make better recommendations for land management, forest management, and everything in between so that we can do better for these forests and all of the life they support. I don't want to steal any of her thunder. She is so passionate about this subject matter, but conversations like this can't happen without supporting indefensive plants. There are a lot of great ways to do that, especially around the holidays, and one of the best is to pick up some of our customizable merch. All our apparel is adorned with really cool vintage prints, and because they're customizable, there is a size and color that fits your style. So go check that out because, again, conversations like this can't happen unless you support the show. But speaking of the show, let's get on with it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Marie. I hope you enjoy. All right, Marie Antoine, this has been a long time in the making. It is an absolute honor to have you on the podcast. So for those that aren't familiar with your work, let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. All right. Well, thank you, Matt. It is my honor to be here chatting with you. Uh, I really appreciate the invitation. Of course. Um, I am a botanist and a tree climbing forest scientist. Nice. Um, I live in Arcata, California. And I'm affiliated with Cal Poly Humboldt, which um, until recently was Humboldt State University. Uh, For the past 20 years, I've been a lecturer in their Department of Biological Sciences. Um, And I just recently transitioned over to being a full-time research associate in the Department of Forestry and Fire and Rangeland Management here at Humboldt. Excellent. And that is super exciting because you put out such incredible work. But I'm curious where this all really got going. What was the spark? I mean, were you always just kind of a nature kid or were plants really and lichens part of your focus growing up? Um, Well, yes and no, I guess. Um, I was always a nature kid for sure. I grew up kind of um, in the middle of beautiful nowhere in northwestern Ontario up in uh, Canada on the north shore of Lake of the Woods, Ontario. Okay. And I spent so much time outside. My sister and I were really lucky in that regard, but I never knew I was going to study plants. Um, When I went away to university out in Oregon, I was actually an English major. Hmm. Um, And then I became a nutrition major. Wow. Um, So I I dabbled in various (laughs) things. As many do. (laughs) Yeah. It was really through um, living out in Oregon and backpacking and cruising around in the forests out there that I started to notice lichens growing up in the trees. Um, And I took a class on lichens and bryophytes with Dr. Bruce McCune, um, and that kind of piqued my interest. Um, But again, I wasn't really going in that direction. 
but I ended up going back to grad school um, because I had an invitation to do some work up at the Wind River Canopy Crane in Ooh. Washington, which uh, it's since been dismantled. But at the time, it was basically a way of having three-dimensional access to a huge huh. swath of forest by riding up in the gondola suspended on a giant canopy crane arm. Nice. Um, and I studied uh, nitrogen-fixing lichen up there and was looking at its contribution to ecosystem nutrient cycling. And that kind of set me on the path there with, with lichens. Wow. That's awesome that you've kind of always really had yourself sort of rooted in the canopy, so to speak. I mean, it's not unfamiliar territory to be diving up, I guess, not in. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yep. Neat. And really, you know, you don't, not in colloquial sense or in the general public, meet a lot of people that focus on lichens as much. Uh, I think they get overlooked or, you know, they're recognized for being lichens or just lumped into this category. What really spoke to you about this uh, walk of life, so to speak, that that made you look at them more than a lot of other things up in the canopy or really anywhere? Uh, well, when you start to look at lichens, not just the ones in the canopy, but lichens in general, and also bryophytes, it's really like this beautiful, magical, miniature world that's been there all <laughs> along, and it's like hiding in plain sight, right? Yeah. Um, but I guess I came at it initially from kind of a plant physiology and ecosystem nutrient cycling angle. Uh, but once I met my future husband, Steve Sillett, who you talked to yeah. a year ago, Professor Steve Sillett, also at Humboldt, um, he was doing this transformational forest canopy work down in Humboldt in Redwood Canopy. And he invited me to climb with him um, up in a Douglas fir tree up in Washington. And I really, at that point, I wasn't just riding up in the gondola of the train. <laughs> crane at that point right I was like sure. climbing up into this tree and I just became kind of transfixed with all of these beautiful organisms living up in the canopy nice. um, so yeah it was kind of a, a gradual transition from being interested in the, the functional aspect of what the lichens were doing to being interested in the lichens themselves and wanting to get to know them all and understand their diversity and that kind of thing Right, right. Yeah. And I think, you know, nowadays it's easy to fall into, like you said, sort of the functional side of things, the, not reductionism in a negative connotation, but really looking at how and what they're doing. But the diversity aspect often gets the short shrift nowadays. And that's a shame because I would guess in the lichen world, there is untold diversity that is yet to be described. Or if it is described, we really don't understand the extent of where it is, why it is, how it is, that kind of thing. There's certainly a lot of hidden diversity with lichens and probably bryophytes as well. I mean, if we're just going to talk about lichens, like the macro lichens, the lichens that are big, right? The Mm -hmm. ones that really jump out at you. That's only like 25% of described lichen taxa. All of these micro lichens, you know, as the name implies, uh, kind of microscopic lichens. And I bet there's a huge diversity of undescribed taxa with micro lichens. Oh my and then gosh. same with bryophytes. Like if um, I think if people were to get more into the high canopy, for example, of tropical evergreen trees, um, like broadleaf evergreen trees, the the leafy liverworts up there are very poorly understood. So nice. yeah, there's a lot of diversity out there that 
we just don't know about yet. Yeah. And and that's another thing I'm happy you brought up is this concept of bryophytes. It's a, it's a great umbrella term, uh, especially if you're just trying to relate those small plants that people see, maybe recognize, but don't know all that well. But as you mentioned, I mean, my even my plant geared head goes instantly. I'm like, oh, mosses, <laughs> but liverworts. And they're some of my favorite plants in the world. Like nothing brings me joy quite like seeing liverworts doing their thing. So it's a, it's an umbrella term, right? That kind of encapsulates a, a, a variety of plant life. Bryophytes, that's not a formal taxonomic group. Yeah, it um, encompasses mosses, of course, which most people are most familiar with. Um, there's like 12,000 or 13,000 species of mosses. But then there's also liverworts. There's like over 5,000 species of liverworts. Wow. Um, and then we can't forget hornworts, right? Of course. <laughs> there's only like 150 species of them, but hornworts are magical. Like they're so mysterious and they're kind of the, the missing puzzle piece in understanding early land plant evolution. I, I love think. that. Yeah. And yeah. It, it really was. It took me till this year, knowing what they were, being excited about looking for them. It took me till this year to finally meet one. And I think it's one of the best all-time botanical finds for me. I mean, it just marks this important period in my life. <laughs> I can move forward now having known I've definitely met a, a hornwort. <laughs> that makes me really happy, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it made me really happy. So yeah, I took way too many photos if there's ever such a thing. There's no such thing as too many photos of hornworts. Okay. No. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So as you mentioned, you're doing so much of this in the canopy of what are some of the tallest trees in the world. Um, you know, but many of us hiking on the ground, those of us who are a little bit afraid of heights that don't do a lot of climbing, you can see mosses, liverworts, hornworts, lichens at the ground level. But one of the coolest things to me is to go out after a storm and see what's coming down off of the branches that were up in the canopy. And to me, anecdotally, it seems like a vastly different world of diversity. And so do you see a lot of like niche segregation based on substrate, so to speak, or even area of, you know, that 3D space of, of what you're actually finding in these in this micro world? Well, I mean, with, with lichens and bryophytes, generally they are kind of dispersed across particular substrates that they prefer. Mm. Um, and if we wanted to look at, say, vertical distribution of lichens and bryophytes um, within one, a single tall tree, you get kind of this within tree environmental gradient, which is just like a moisture gradient, basically, where mm. at the treetops, you get lichens that require more rapid wetting drying cycles for their physiology. Um, mm. And then when you're kind of in the mid canopy, you get lichens that might prefer to stay hydrated for a little bit longer. Um, when you get down lower, in the crown of a tree, you would start to see more bryophytes because they like to be hydrated for long periods of time. They don't have problems with prolonged hydration. Um, but it also is going to depend on which type of tree you're looking at. Um, and then, like you said, you can also find both lichens and bryophytes on the ground. You can find them growing on rocks. You can find them growing on your car. If you're like me, you haven't washed your car very much lately. Yo, <laughs> speaking my language. <laughs> yeah, I have a nice little colony on the uh, rear view mirror or whatever, door mirror. Uh, <laughs> to another topic in general. But, um, you know, the other really interesting thing here is I see a lot of misconceptions about when people see a lot of this growth on trees up in the branches, they go, oh my gosh, they're parasites. They're killing this tree. And it's always a soapbox for me of like, no, no, it's good. It's probably a symptom of maybe something else, but you, they're, these are generally, 
I never say for sure in biology, but generally it's a commensal sort of relationship that's not hurting the substrate they're growing on. Lichens and bryophytes are, as far as we know, not parasitic on their hosts. They're, okay, they're simply using them as a place to grow. Um, but you will see, for example, on the lower branches of a tree that are dying because they're being shaded out, right? Mm-hmm. They're being self-thinned from a tree. You will often see more lichens and bryophytes on dying branches, but it's not that the lichens or bryophytes have killed those branches, right? It's just that the tree's foliage has gone away, so there's more light for the lichens and bryophytes to grow nice but yeah they're as, as far as we know they're not hurting their host tree i mean they don't have roots so they're not like <laughs> the vascular system of their host tree right right thank you so don't take it from me secondhand you got an expert right here telling you <laughs> this is you can go forth and spread the the good word about these being great organisms to have so let's get into what you do on say a monthly basis or, or, you know, year to year, you're up in these trees, you're up in the canopy of some of the world's tallest organisms, largest, most massive organisms already. That's incredible, but you're doing it in a way that's, it's looking at things people oftentimes have never seen or will never see in their lifetime. So what is it like to go out and say, all right, I'm going to go study bryophytes and lichens in the canopy of redwoods or Douglas fir. Like how do where do you begin? Well, first, I should probably clear up um, a misimpression I may have given here. I actually, for the past 22 years that I've been working with my husband, uh, Steve Sillett, I haven't been studying the lichens and bryophytes in the trees. I've been studying, I've been working with Steve studying the trees themselves. Okay. So I I worked on lichens and bryophytes, or on lichens for my master's degree, and I taught this class at Cal Poly Humboldt on lichens and bryophytes, but my other job for eight months of the year working with Steve um, was studying mostly redwoods, other tree species too, but okay. studying the trees themselves. So um, over the years, it shifted from when I first arrived on the scene here, kind of establishing that connection between structural complexity of giant mm. trees and the biodiversity that they can host. For example, um, before Steve and his team started climbing up into these trees, there hadn't really been a scientific investigation of like these giant car sized fern mats or like shrub thickets up in these trees or epiphytic conifers. Like all of that was totally new. Um, So that was kind of when I started working with him, that was what we were focusing on. But over the years we got more and more into what the trees themselves are doing, how they're Mm. performing, um, how they develop over their long lifespan um, how redwoods in particular might respond to a changing climate, um, things like that. So even though my botanical focus in terms of what I've taught all these years was lichens and bryophytes, my other professional focus of working with Steve and the team actually was redwood trees mostly, um, nice. and, and also some dabbling in Douglas firs and eucalyptus down in Australia and so forth. Excellent. Well, thank you for the clarification. But at the same time, all of those things you love and teach about wouldn't be up there if it wasn't for this habitat space. And and what cooler habitat space to study than is redwoods. And I I really admire and, and appreciate the focus on sort of the structural complexity of these systems. Because, yeah, even though so much of these older forests have been logged, people will say, well, there's still redwoods out there. What's the difference, right? Like, it's a species that's on the landscape in many different places, many different sizes and ages. 
but it's that structural complexity that you just don't get until a tree reaches, you know, potential size or whatever it is that really starts to determine that. And that is where a lot of these other ecological benefits, biodiversity support benefits truly come from, is it not? You're, you're absolutely correct. Yeah. Um, so like redwoods never occupied a huge land area to start with, mm -hmm. right? They're, they're endemic to a narrow strip uh, from central California and just up into southern Oregon. Um, and of that small land area, like 95% of that primary forest has been logged at least once. Yeah. Um, and mature secondary forests, like trees over 100 years or so, is actually even more scarce than primary forests. So we, I think we, as humans, like we're in awe of redwoods, right? There's yeah. some of the oldest trees. They are the tallest tree species, um, at least in this day and age. Uh, but the forest primeval that we're, we're so impressed by, it's, it's a dwindling resource, mm -hmm. really. Um, and your point about the connection between the structure of these gnarly old trees and the biodiversity they can support, that's a really important point. Um, because in all that landscape that is covered in regenerating redwood forests, you might have a few lichens, like a very few, a small suite of lichens, but that's it. There's no giant fern mats. There's no huckleberry shrubs mm. up in these young forests. Um, so it really is like the biggest, the oldest, the gnarliest redwoods that are special. And it's like a pretty small number of giant trees that are doing the bulk of the work in terms of biodiversity provisioning. Um, and that's something that's really hit home and um, has become increasingly important to both me and Steve, just the, the value of the individual giant tree in the forest. They're like these miniature biological refugia, really. Yeah. Um, and we, we got to do something to, to make some provision for getting trees like that back on the landscape. Yeah. I, I like that you mentioned refugia because really that's what it comes down to is, yes, these younger forests, if managed and protected well, will become someday many, many lifetimes away the forest potentially that we see today, these awe-inspiring gnarly old ones. But in order for that life to come back, you know, versus a couple lichens versus hundreds of untold organisms living up there, you need a source, right? And that's the idea of a refugia is that you don't just get something from nothing or if you do, it takes way longer than it should, sustainably speaking. And so this idea of refugia comes from this fact that you do need source material to blow in, be carried in, that kind of thing? You, yeah, to have, to have um, that biodiversity back on the landscape that ultimately you know, could be part of these canopy ecosystems, you have to have the source, you have to have the refugia serving as like the propagule source. But you also have to have some place for them to go, right? <laughs> right. Like there's there's got to be other trees that have the appropriate structure out there. Um, and with a species like redwood that can live for 2,000 years, mm -hmm. um, if you consider that the rotation age with, with forestry, you might have like a 50-year rotation age, right? Uh. So... If we consider that it's the, like I said, the oldest, gnarliest, like the elder trees in the forest that are providing this ecosystem function, um, that's not going to happen if we continue to treat redwoods like a crop across all of that regenerating forest land. We've 
got to start thinking about setting some of those trees aside, even in a working forest, right? right. If right. we just have some of those trees that are designated, um, however that works. I mean, do you put a conservation easement on a single tree? I don't know. <laughs> uh, fun <laughs> model to think about, though. I mean, hey. <laughs> But this is another important point to drive home before we really get into the meat of this is that this isn't a don't touch anything, leave it all alone, get out of here. I don't like economic you know, development or jobs. It, this is we can work together to a common goal that actually really helps all aspects of ecology, human health, human well-being, all that. Absolutely. Yeah. To, to say that, no, we should just, you know, draw a line around this regenerating forest and leave it alone. Um, I think, you know, people who might say that it's not that they're wrong. It's, I'm, sure. I'm not going to say, no, that's a bad idea, but it's an oversimplification because those forests are no longer natural systems, right? They've, mm-hmm. they've regenerated after a pretty unnatural disturbance, particularly if you're talking about clear cut logging. So, you have these super dense forests with all even age trees, which wouldn't usually be a thing, right? So I'm, I'm definitely not saying no, don't touch it. Um, some chainsaws in there, uh, freeing some of the trees <laughs> that you might want to promote for their future habitat value, for their carbon sequestration, um, cutting some of the neighbors around them to give them more growing space is going to help them. So there's there's definitely a way where we can have forest products and non-timber values not be mutually exclusive. There we go. Love it. So we know that older trees have this gnarly structure. There's a complexity to it. And we know there are things living up there. But can you draw the connection between structure and epiphytic communities, like all of that biodiversity that's happening often hundreds of feet up in the air? Like, How does structure equate to more biodiversity? Structure and biodiversity are directly connected. Um, If you picture, okay, let's imagine first a young tree, a young redwood tree. We'll we'll focus just on redwoods here. It's a trunk with branches, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And none of the branches are very big. But over time, as that tree starts to live its life and gets damaged, it will start to have reiterated trunks, which is just a repeat of the architectural model, basically, where where you'll get like trunks on trunks or trunks on limbs. And you start to get kind of this candelabra effect. Mm. And over time, instead of having like a single trunk with small branches, you have trunks coming off of bigger limbs that serve as broad platforms. A broad platform is going to be a much better place for, say, a fern spore to start Uh, its whole life cycle that will ultimately become a giant fern mat that can develop into the size of a car after a thousand years or whatever. (laughs) Um, And then the other thing with redwoods, they kind of have this extra superpower of um, this incredibly decay resistant heartwood, right? That's one of the reasons why redwoods have been so heavily cut because their wood Mm. doesn't rot very easily. But if we're talking about a standing tree that's been there for a thousand years or whatever, it accumulates this damage, but it doesn't just fall into ruin because of the damage, because it can just compartmentalize that and the fungi can't get in and rot it very easily. But those pockets of slowly decaying 
heartwood are actually really important for um, ericaceous shrubs. So shrubs in the blueberry family, mm. um, they have the type of mycorrhizae that can handle that like super acidic heartwood chemistry and the waterlogged heartwood. Um, okay. So it's kind of like with redwoods, it's kind of a combination of the way that they form physically these big broad platforms for things to grow, but then also that they have these little pockets bits of water holding slowly decaying heartwood where shrub thickets can take off. I love that. I mean, it's just so wild to think about the world, a microcosm of a world up in this tree. But, you know, it's a, like you said, the structural complexity of it. But then, you know, you talk about soil chemistry and how that promotes different kinds of plants and fungi. It's it's the fractal universe, right? Here is soil chemistry determining what's going on up in the canopy, which, you know, ericaceous shrubs have their own structure and complexity, and I'm sure different mosses and liverworts and lichens can grow on them. It's it's yeah. just amazing once you start to tear, piece it apart. And you're among the handful of people in the world that's able to get up there and start poking around going, what what is going on up here? I never, ever take that for granted. Um, you know, I'll a lot of the time, the, the work that we do, the canopy work, it's it's sheer physical manual labor. It's yeah. hard work. Yeah. But um, all I ever have to do if I'm if I'm tired or I've been coring trees all day and my arms hurt or I'm cold <laughs> or I'm hungry, whatever, just stop and take a deep breath and look around and realize exactly what you said. Um, that it's it's a world that very few people experience, and I never ever take that for granted. Um, which makes it all the more important to me to um, try and take the lessons that we've learned from all these years of working in the primary forest and make a difference out in this huge landscape of regenerating forest that isn't, you know, the gnarly ancient trees. Right. And that brings us to this point that, you know, you and, and Steve and others have been starting to put forward. And I really like it because it is this recognition that we have to find a practical, pragmatic solution that works for ecology. And it brings up this idea of these potential elder trees. And I love that because it's got these connotations that will resonate across cultures, but it also really gets at the heart of everything you've just been discussing, this link between age and complexity and biodiversity and, and what this ecosystem truly is, uh, you know, even if we don't know all the players at this point. Yeah, the, the potential elder tree idea, um, it, it makes me feel hopeful. Like, you I know, like that. I was, <laughs> we I was, need that. <laughs> hope, hope is a little hard to find these days, right? Sure um, so I kind of grasp at it wherever I can find it. Um, but, you know, this idea, I've been talking about these, these old gnarly giant trees, and we've come to think of these as, as elder trees, right? And they, mm-hmm. they truly, they literally are the elders in the sense of, um, you know, we just did this range-wide analysis of redwood and, of the 235 trees that we climbed for this study, um, only like 34 of them had any vascular epiphytes. So had fern mats or had shrubs growing in them. Wow. And the average age of that subset of trees was over a thousand years. So it really is a small number of these big trees. Like yeah. I said, they were doing the work. Um, so if we can recognize that, it's actually a pretty powerful and hopeful thing. It means that we don't have to have the whole forest filled with these giant trees, which goes back to your point that we can have forest products and we can have some of the trees serving these other non-timber values. But with potential elder trees, um, we're kind of looking at trees that have that potential for whatever reason. Maybe they're in a 
you know, a favorable landscape position. Maybe they're a little bit older than the rest of their um, regenerating cohort, something like that, where they're showing that potential to live out their whole entire lifespan and become those biological refugia uh, for the forest of the future. Yeah, it's really exciting. And it's the, the other part of it, too, is it's, it distills a lot of complex science into something very digestible that can be talked about in very easy ways. You know what I mean? And and like you said, people go to the Redwood Forest to be have that sense of awe and wonder. And I mean, it tracks people of all socioeconomic, political backgrounds. We can all marvel at it. So there's something there that unites it. And having something to talk about that isn't so aggressive or overly complicated but still encapsulates these complicated ideas is, is pretty powerful when it comes to, like you said, trying to do something and, and, and go beyond just the walls of academia. Like, how do we apply this, right? Right. Yeah, I feel like, um, you know, people, like you said, come to from all over the world to visit the Redwoods and hike in these beautiful parks that we're so lucky remain. Mm. Um, but I almost feel like it would be equally valuable for people to come from all over the world and also experience the regenerating redwood forests just to get a sense of the difference between the primary forest and what's out there as this regenerating landscape of redwoods. Um, so maybe people would have a little bit more appreciation of, you know, a redwood's not a redwood's not a redwood. Right, right. right. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's, it's not all the same. The individual tree matters. Yeah. Um, so every single tree that we can designate, even if it's a forest that's going to continue providing timber into, you know, as long as we can project out, if we can designate some of these potential elder trees and just leave them alone, <laughs> um, maybe plant some ferns up into them too. That's something we've been doing. Um, that is something that I think would make people feel inspired. Inspired, but also to have that um, understanding that really these primeval redwood forests—they're scarce. Yeah, we gotta we gotta somehow think of how we can get more of these in the future. Right. I mean, it is sort of the Instagram effect of like you're only seeing the best of the best of everyone and everything all the time. You need that background data to have a comparison to. Otherwise, you're like, oh, well, everything's fine, but. Yeah. I also love that with this idea, you can start testing other ideas out. And you mentioned uh, fern transplants and, and you're working with a little polypody fern, which is amazing. I love that genus. But it's also really interesting to think that like ancient trees often have ancient life. And this idea of an ancient fern mat, you know, how do you replicate that? How do you get that back on the landscape? I mean, from this idea, you all have now worked towards other ideas of testing hypotheses, testing, you know, restoration techniques, even if it's on a small scale, it's, it's a hook that then other lines can be drawn off of. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the ancient fern mats, right? Like a, a, I keep referring to the car sized fern mats, but <laughs> like, we don't really know how old some of these giant fern mats are in the, in the primary forest, but they've got to be, pushing a thousand years old, some yeah. of them. Um, and as you know, with, with ferns, they have to start from a spore, right? 
Right. And you have that vulnerable gametophyte stage where like the sperm have to swim to the egg and fertilize the egg to make the baby sporophyte, which finally produces a fern frond that a non-botanist would recognize as a fern. <laughs> it's only like a tip but, of the iceberg. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so imagine that happening in a 50-year-old redwood that's the trunk with the tiny branches. It's, yeah. it's not going to happen. Um, so one of the things that we're trying to do with these we have this little pilot project going um, out in a local forest, the Van Eck Forest here, just um, north of Arcata, where we're kind of jump-starting that process with uh, taking Polypodium scoleri, the leatherleaf fern, which is that keystone species in the redwood canopy. We're taking little chunks of Polypodium scoleri that have been collected with a permit. They've fallen out of the primary forest during winter storms. Um, and our colleague Giacomo Renzulo, who's working with me and Steve on this, um, has been growing these and the three of us are transplanting them up into these pets, potential elder trees to kind of jumpstart that whole process. Um, but it's tricky because those little potential elder trees don't have the broad platforms. Um, mm. So just even finding places where there's like a crotch between two trunks where you can wedge the fern mat in that's structure that's really scarce in these young forests. Yeah. Um, so we're learning a lot about what the limitations are um, just in terms of reintroducing biodiversity like that. Right, right. Because as anyone that grows plants knows, I mean, microclimate matters. It's why a lot of tropical things don't do well in the average household. There's not a good microclimate for it. And if you don't know what those limitations are, where do you even begin? And so you know, it's it's fascinating to think that this is sort of the trial days of of really important work and and work of people like my friend Estefania Fernandez. Is it's like these epiphyte communities support so much more biodiversity than we even realize. And going back to you know your early work with lichens and liverworts, is thinking about sort of those microclimate. Why why do we see them in these trees? Why don't we see them? Almost, it's as important to know what doesn't work. And what won't work as what does in these sort of early days investigations uh, into the world of, of so many unknowns. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's it's one thing to say, yeah, we're going to reintroduce biodiversity by transplanting whatever up into these trees. But um, if we don't know if it's going to work, then there's no point in doing it until, you know, figuring out what doesn't work and what does work. Um, so... With with ferns, once you have established ferns, I think they can grow wherever you plant them, mm. except for they got to be able to hold on. So, like, <laughs> uh, you know, it's one thing, like, the, the microclimate thing, certainly, if we're talking about polypodium starting from a spore, then the microclimate's going to be a problem in a young forest. Right. But if we're talking about putting, like, a loaf of bread-sized chunk of fern <laughs> up into a tree, it's actually going to grow pretty well, at least mm. if we're in Humboldt County, Delmark County, places that have enough fog, because these epiphytes are not connected to groundwater, right? Sure. So they, they need fog during the summer. Um, but the problem is, you can't just stick them on a branch and tie them on. Like we're using hemp twine, right? So that it will biodegrade and we're not girdling the branch or anything. Good idea. <laughs> but once the hemp twine rots away, if it's not a good enough platform, that loaf of fern is just going to slither off and fall to the ground. Oh. So that's something we've learned over the course of the last two years. Like they've got to kind of be wedged into places, um, which goes back to the problem of the lack of structure in these young trees. Um, yeah. But 
yeah. Anyway, I mean, it's it's that whole is it you know propagule limited or habitat limited, and sometimes it's just a function of if it can get there, it's going to be fine. But that it's yeah. all tying back to this potential elder tree that refugee idea is how is it getting there in the first place? Is it a spore blowing in from hundreds of miles away, or is it a tree, a couple trees that were left because of that potential elder tree possibility? And that's where I think recognizing these little attributes, why that's important, any extra layer you can put on that only strengthens the case that, okay, maybe protecting single trees is something we got to consider. How do we figure that out, you know, sociopolitically, so to speak? That's kind of an exciting thing to think of, though, because that framework doesn't really exist, right? Like, yeah. we know how to protect tracts of land, but um, yeah, that idea of setting individual trees aside in perpetuity is. Um, something that we don't really know how to do yet. And this, like, I, I love this idea generally of biological refugia kind of sprinkled around and being numerous and connected enough that we can actually have healthy functioning ecosystems, even in highly modified landscapes, right? right. This isn't necessarily, in fact, it's not at all a concept that's limited to redwood forests. It just, it matters what you do in your own yard in terms right. of, biological uh function but yeah with with the individual tree thing um there's some creative thinking can be done in terms of how that works over the long term like you know generations from now are we still going to have a way of saying yes this tree was set aside in 2023 tell us about its 2000 year lifespan right yeah. I, yeah. I mean, like, this is, again, where I always want to harp on this idea. You don't have to be a biologist to get involved in these sorts of things. I mean, this is something to me that would take a lawyer, perhaps, or someone that understands easements or the laws around that. How do you adapt those things into something that's has that staying power? Uh, because land can change hands, economic incentives change. It's There's a lot that can happen, but it works on the landscape scale. And I... I I'm really just shooting in the dark and totally ignorant to the idea, but I would assume protecting a tree is a little bit financially easier than buying up huge tracts of land nowadays. So there's, there's also that like economic incentive to kind of push it forward. Like, yeah, conservation dollars are limited, but a tree is easier maybe financially to protect than all of the land around it. Yeah. There's gotta be, I mean, you said the words economic incentive. There's, there's got to be more of an economic incentive um, for biodiversity provisioning. Yeah. Like one side of one side of it, of course, is long-term carbon sequestration. Right. right? Like redwoods with their decay-resistant heartwood, they're carbon sequestration champions, particularly the the largest trees. But uh, carbon credits, that's that's not going to yeah. cover it. Like putting a value on biodiversity is notoriously fraught, right? Like we don't really have a good system for doing that yet, which doesn't mean it can't happen. Right. But there's, there's gotta be more of an economic incentive for ecosystem function for creating biological refugia, whether at the single tree level, the city park level, your own yard, whatever. Like Mm -hmm. um, it's so important for the survival of non-human and human species alike. Um, yeah, I mean, sort of the the emphasis on cross-interdisciplinary sort of work like that is encouraging, though. Again, another reason to have hope, because I hear more people having these conversations. We may not be able to quantify all of the impacts, but 
the more data that pour in, the more we know biodiversity is a good thing for our lives as we know it today. It's not asking us to revert to some ancestral state. It is as we exist as modern humans, whether you like it or not, progress is an ever <laughs> progressing tide. Uh, we need yeah. biodiversity. And the, you know that to me is, I think, another area for hope because greater minds than mine are thinking about politics and economy, economics and stuff like that. But you know, people are waking up a little bit more to this idea that biodiversity and, and really ecology has to be a part of that. Otherwise, we're, we're, we're effed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I concur. <laughs> um, yeah. And also like biodiversity at, at multiple scales, you know, like I, I always, if we return to the theme of lichens and bryophytes, like over the years, they've almost become kind of a metaphor to me, like a metaphor of paying attention to details yeah. and the value that exists in what seems so small. And yet if you're a tiny animal living in the moss forest, say that's your whole world, right? Right. So like you can have biological refugia at so many different spatial scales and everybody has the power to create at least something a little bit better in terms of, the ecology of their immediate surroundings. Um, So yeah, I think, I think it's really hopeful that people are thinking about that more. Um, It's a topic of conversation. Um, And I also like what you said about it being really an interdisciplinary uh, challenge. Yeah. I mean, it's gotta be right. I am so stuck in my little world that I, I don't have the time or really the energy anymore to venture too far out of my comfort zone. I mean, it's just the reality of, of the way life goes sometimes. And so the more interdisciplinary stuff I see cropping up, even if it doesn't, you know, tickle my fancy or the next person's fancy, like it does for someone. And those are really going to be at the forefront of every issue we face as, as a species really. Yeah. And that's the great thing. Like, not everybody has to do all the things, right? We all have like our different talents and our different things that we like to do and that we're good at. And um, if everybody comes at the problems from all the different directions, you know, there's these insurmountable problems in the world all around us, but all these big problems are made up of tons and tons and tons of tiny problems, right? Yeah. Everybody has all these talents for solving these tiny problems. And I feel like if um, we all just focus a little bit more on figuring out what our talents are and how they can be used to pick away at these tiny problems. Mm-hmm. We, we really could do more than we're doing. Yeah. I often hear sort of the big environmental issue being talked of rightfully so is death by a thousand cuts, mm-hmm. but that means there's a thousand tiny band-aids to think about. And that's exactly what you're getting. <laughs> you know, and that's, that. that's far <laughs> more tangible uh, to me because yeah, I, I'm overwhelmed by the world, but what's going on yeah. in my own yard, for instance, is under my control for once. <laughs> One of the few things that is. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you know, I, I said earlier that everybody has the power to do something. And I realized that that's not really true. You know, there's a lot of people in this world who, um, day to day are just struggling to survive for, for whatever reason. Right. So it really is, we have this position of privilege that we're even having this conversation. Sure. Um, But if you're not somebody who, you know, is uh, just struggling for day to day survival or living in a war zone or whatever thing that is taking away your ability to pick apart the world's problems, 
if you're in this privileged position where you can start applying those thousands of tiny band-aids, yeah, we should, we should do it. Like, yeah. I, I just love that analogy of all the band-aids for all the tiny cuts. <laughs> yeah. It's not mine for the record. I cannot lay credit to that, but you know, and, and part of that is just being communicative and doing what you and Steve are doing by trying to tell these stories and telling them in different ways. You have the academic side, you have the sort of science communication side of it all. But the, the, the one thing that really runs true throughout every way you interact with the world that I've been able to digest is the passion. There's no denying you're absolutely passionate about this subject matter and everything tied to it. And passion is to me, one of the most contagious qualities in a human being. Like we are driven to want to care about these things. It's, you know, again, we're privileged enough to have the time and a capacity to do that. But, you know, here you are again of the handful of people up in these trees, being able to try to understand diversity and structure and all that. You gotta be just every time you're up in a tree, something new is going on. And, and I, you know, you can't take away the love of lichens and bryophytes. So, you know, and a more, personal stance when you're up in these trees and you're in those moments when you have a chance to breathe and not be collecting data a hundred percent of the time are you just noticing things all the time or is there always cool stuff going on up there i can only imagine how amazing just the view is let alone the things you're seeing at different scales there's always cool stuff going on up there absolutely yeah um it, you know if if you're in the primary redwood forest and you're looking out across giant fern mats or you see a salamander cruising out of some rock pocket you know where a branch <laughs> once was a thousand years ago like what what a treat to see that um but also in these young forests that we've been doing more work in recently just that hopeful potential looking out across um you know the, the canopy of all these young trees that are just growing their little hearts out like I just, the views absolutely are one of the the real treats for being up there um and in certain forest types like for years we did a lot of work down in southeastern australia um and the island of tasmania as well um and down there the bird life was so oh, cool yeah. just uh like hearing all the that to my ears at least were unusual bird calls was like such a treat i just i yeah. love that yeah, I gotta say it was the most alien experience as as like a, a student of nature of North America to go to Australia in that neck of the woods. It just everything was so different, and it's so rare yeah. to have that in this world where you're like, I, I don't know what I'm looking at or what I'm hearing ever. And that's such a cool yeah. experience to have as someone that you know, if you really do pay attention to the nature around you. Yeah. Did you have that impression when you went to Australia, where at first it seemed kind of familiar, and then you started looking around like, wait, everything is subtly different. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I, yeah. Cause you know, again, I, I'm a functional trade ecologist. Like I look at the structure of plants and, and to me, you, you do see familiar patterns repeating themselves wherever you're at, but yeah, it, 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 you get the landscape view. You go, Oh, okay. You know, and you know, added benefit, everyone was speaking my language, albeit with a slightly different accent. So it yeah. was strange to be on a plane that long. Mm -hmm. Still feel that comfortable when you got off, but then the closer you looked, you're like, I am so out of my element, and it happens pretty quickly once you start looking. Yeah, totally. Like I just I remember that first impression of looking out across the landscape around Melbourne, for example, and the river red gums uh, that yeah. just they kind of look like oak trees, and if you squint your eyes, it kind of looks like Central California. Yeah, yeah. But 
then like there's a kangaroo hopping across. <laughs> yeah. A lorikeet or something. You're like, wait, there's parrots in this. Like, oh gosh. And then they're native. Oh my gosh. It's yeah. incredible. And then, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you get into the eucalyptus forest and you go, oh, hey, angiosperms can do that too. And they have yeah. their own bryophyte mats and their own liverworts and lichens. And I mean, some of the lichens I was seeing out there, it just... I'm never going to recover from that feeling, you know, it's, and that's a cool place to be. Yeah. Those, those rainforests um, down like the eucalyptus ragnans forests are so magical, but interestingly, those trees up in their crowns, up in the canopy, there's not a lot of epiphyte action hmm. because think about what eucalyptus does every year, right? It peels its outer bark. Oh. So there's not that stable bark substrate. Um, and there were actually very few lichens or bryophytes once you got up above that persistent bark skirt down at the bottom of the trees. Fascinating. And then, yeah, there you go. We go back to like function, structure, all that stuff really does matter. And here's a tree evolved in very different circumstances, evolved a very different strategy for life. Yeah. It was always like driving, especially in the twilight hours, you're going, is that an animal I have to avoid or just a giant chunk of bark that's sloughed off and fallen on the road? Yeah, right. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, there you go. It's just the, the the biology of a tree affects biodiversity all around it. You know, what can and can't grow there. And and sometimes it's a lot of things. Sometimes it's almost nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, and then what kind of tree does the forest create, right? Like, I, I feel like we get so caught up sometimes on just like the forest as a thing. Yeah. But when you start to consider the individual trees, kind of going back to that theme, it's going to be a very different forest, depending on what the trees are, depending on the age of the trees, and all that sort of thing. So yeah, there's so many different levels that you can understand uh, yeah. the world around you. And it applies in everywhere there are plants, right? It's not just these tallest or largest trees. It is, you know, is it a beech or an oak forest? If you're in the Northeast, for instance, it's... All of those make a difference, and that's why paying attention to biodiversity makes a difference. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, or even in a place where there's no trees, right? Like yeah. considering the vast northern peatlands that are – talk about mosses having um, yeah. ecosystem services. Like I love sphagnum. It's my, my favorite moss species. But this is now – the peat mosses are totally relevant for atmospheric chemistry, right? Big time. Because of the – permafrost and the sudden availability of all that deep soil carbon being metabolized into methane and carbon yeah. dioxide or the so, mosses yeah. being crowded out because now trees and shrubs can encroach you know it's like right. the yeah. someone also said once again can't take credit for this the presence of one species also means the absence of many others and we have to figure out those nuances and be able to talk about those nuances because it's it's not a one size fits all sort of approach to how we interact with the natural world because we're going to continue to be, we got to figure out how to do it better. Yeah. I and concur. So with that, you know, you and Steve and others are putting in so much effort to understand these systems. Like where do you see this going? What do you get excited about over the horizon in terms of where your work is taking you and where you want it to go? I am excited about expanding this idea of potential elder trees into uh, the larger forested landscape, like getting getting land managers to really embrace this this concept, which we've we've got some traction on this. We're working with Cal Fire right now, um, nice. who manage a, a lot of land, obviously in California. 
Um, and we're working with this, this idea of just designating trees, individual trees, recognizing the importance of individual trees, um, I think could be expanded far beyond the redwood forest. So I'm, I'm interested in helping make that happen um, and hopefully establishing some of those interdisciplinary connections that you were referring to earlier. That is so excellent. And again, fuel for hope. And oh gosh, we need that <laughs> in this world. But yeah, that connection between theory and science and the people on the ground doing the work that can make a difference to connect those two things is there's no other option as far as I'm concerned moving forward into this future. So if people want to learn more about your work, where do you recommend they go looking? Um, I would recommend they go to Steve's website, which I will, um, I'll send you an email for that link. Perfect. Maybe you could just, since I don't know it offhand, you could put that. Oh, that's okay. No one ever remembers to write it down hardly. So I always put things in the show notes to save people the trouble. So that will be up there wherever people go look for this podcast. But Marie, I am so happy we finally got a chance to sit down and have a conversation. I, I, I just can't thank you enough for the work that you're doing and, and for just being great people, doing amazing work, caring about these ecosystems and, and really educators. I, I, I want to also give a shout out to, I know a bunch of people that went to Humboldt that just sing your praises as a, as a, an educator and um, you know, Sarah Hecox being one of the best. Uh, hi Sarah, if you're listening, uh, you know, <laughs> y'all do incredible work and you're touching a lot more people uh, than probably could be realized. So thank you for everything. Oh, thank you for those kind words, Matt. I, I really appreciate that. And also, I mean, hats off to you. Look at the incredible work that you're doing. Talk about educating people. Like your, your podcasts are reaching so many people and people aren't going to care about things if they don't know about them. So just imagine all of the trajectories of people's lives that you're nudging with every podcast that you uh, produce. I think, I think it's incredible. I, I really appreciate that. But yeah, again, thank you so much for your time tonight and for just talking to us about this really important subject and I wish you all the best and keep it up. Cheers. Thanks Cheers. so much. <laughs> all right. How incredible is that? I can't tell you what an honor it is to speak with Marie. I've been a fan of her and Steve's work for a very long time. And to be able to talk with people like them and be inspired and hear their messages of hope is just, it's a privilege and an honor. And I'm so happy you get to hear those conversations. As always, go check out the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com where I put all of the relevant links for these conversations and so many more. While you're over there, look at all of the great ways you can support the show because conversations like this can't happen without support. You can buy a copy of my book, you can pick up stickers, you can even get some of our customizable merch. But one of the best ways to support the show is to become a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. For a little financial support each month, you get a bunch of great kickbacks, including bonus episodes, but you can help keep the show up and running, and I thank each and every one of my patrons for kicking in. I couldn't be doing it without them. But that is it for this week. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.